Welcome to Supreme Myths on this post-election Wednesday, I think. I don't really know what day it is. Um, I am so happy to have uh, Scott Shapiro here as my guest. I'm going to introduce him. That could take 45 minutes, but for now, I'll just say he is the Charles F. Southmade Professor of Law, I hope that was close, um, at Yale Law School. He went to Columbia, got his BA and PhD at Columbia, his JD from Yale. Um, he's the author of a zillion articles, essays, uh, at least two great books, The Internationalist with his colleague Ona Hathaway, um, and Legality, which I wish we could talk about today, but we're probably not going to because there, there are more important current things to talk about. Um, Scott, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much. It's just it's great to be here and it's great to be like not crying. Right. Um, so so two caveats uh, or what not caveat one statement and one caveat. The statement is I was really looking. We've never met in person. We are Twitter friends. Um, you were supposed to give the Constitution Day speech at Georgia State this September. COVID got in the way of that. That made me sad. So I'm really glad we can do this, but not as a replacement for next year's Constitution yeah, Day, yeah. which I hope you will come. The caveat is I'd love to. I'm exhausted. Scott is exhausted. We <laughs> didn't want to reschedule. Uh, we were going to talk about all kinds of great things about his wonderful scholarship, but we're probably not going to do that today. Um, so let's just start with this, Scott, because you have 40,000 Twitter followers and your opinions are well received by many. What is your take on what happened last night, what is happening today and what is likely to happen over the next three or four days or months for that matter? Well, I, you know, I was texting all day with an old Republican hand. Guy's seen everything. No, I'm joking. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 didn't, do any, I didn't do any of that. Um, uh, I, I was, um, you know, it, it looks pretty clear that Biden will win. And that is that is like a huge um, uh, milestone, huge accomplishment to have unseated an incumbent. Uh, you know, we're all, uh, like what the next four years with um, a Biden presidency and administration facing a McConnell um, Republican uh, radicalized um, uh, Trumpian uh, Senate uh, and the kind of Weimar crisis jurisprudence that we're going to be facing over the next couple of years is really unfun. So so you just said you're pretty sure Biden will win again, everybody. This is Wednesday at noon. Um, I am nowhere near as confident as you are. (laughs) that Biden is going to win. Tell me what, uh, and I think this is, by the way, when this airs, he won't have won yet, I'm pretty sure. Tell, tell me why you think he's going to win. Well, they just called Wisconsin. Okay. So um, so they have all the votes counted there and uh, and Biden's ahead. Um, Michigan, have a, a, the, um, Biden's ahead. They have 100,000 more to count. See, you know, the early vote um, is leans Biden, so it's unlikely to cut into his lead. Um, and then uh, they uh, people look optim- uh, feel optimistic about Pennsylvania. They don't need Pennsylvania. There's still questions about Georgia. Don't need Georgia. I mean, right now he seems to have not a lock, but a okay. pretty um, straight uh, straight path. To two seventy, 
Um, and, so, and do you think so? Um, I'm in some ways a Bill Maher fan, and in some ways I'm not. Um, I think sometimes so I don't agree with a lot of what he says. I respect him and his show because anything goes. It's the only show on television where I think you can say anything correct or incorrect. He really believes Trump won't leave voluntarily under any scenario um, and that he will have to be forced out in some kind of serious way. And I'm not sure he's wrong. I'm sorry, who did you say? Uh, uh, I don't know. Bill Maher. He's on HBO. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Bill Maher. I mean, I I don't care what Bill Maher thinks. I mean, like, what's the what what are the incentives um, here is the are the incentives for the civil service and for the, you know, the the entire uh, federal government to go along with what one guy is saying or to 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 go along with what seems to be the um, uh, the consensus among the public, uh, assuming that there is that. Right. Uh, well, rough I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I so so as as people who, who follow me on Twitter know, I think people underestimate the effect a man named Roy Cohn had on Donald Trump. And I know you know that. I know, I know you know who he is. But for people who don't, Roy Cohn was the lawyer behind McCarthy in the 1950s, uh, one of the most despicable Americans of the last 75 years by any standard. Um, Trump's mentor uh, until Roy Cohn got AIDS and then Trump left, betrayed him. Um, but, but Roy Cohn's strategy of life at all times – was never concede defeat, no matter what, under any circumstances, um, and always pretend that you win. So I guess I'm thinking just physically, just logistically. Trump goes on tel- – so the, the election is called for Biden in, uh, next Tuesday, and Trump comes on TV and says, it's fake news, it's false, I really won, I'm not going anywhere. I think there's a 25 percent chance that happens. If that happens, then what? Literally, what, I mean, physically, what happens? Well, I, I just don't think it's in, like, this. Like, a stalemate um, in, in, in the White House, like a standoff yeah. in the White House. Um, like, there's a, like, there's just be one guy hollering. <laughs> but, you know, I don't, I don't. You know, Biden with his team will walk in. And I mean, I, I, I you're old enough, of course, to remember what it was like in 2000. You know, there was a kind of authority that Bush had by virtue of being ahead and having been called um, the victor, even though that was um, that was uh, withdrawn. I think, you know, one of the things that the what's interesting slash depressing about the election is it shows, you know, that like the Trump people are sick of Trump, but Trumpism is still um, very appealing. Um, I mean, there's a really interesting question whether you can have Trump without Trumpism. It's just that it seems like yeah. people are relatively sick of the guy um, and would rather uh, see him go. Um, Scott, I, what, I, Scott what, what do you mean by Trumpism? I want because I want because after you, 
I really want to talk about that. What do you mean by Trump? Forget Trump. What do you mean by Trumpism? Uh, but, you know, kind of um, authoritarian, um, somebody who is not particularly, he doesn't particularly care about good governance, um, is somebody who is in, um, who makes um, authority charismatic as opposed to um, somebody who thinks that they're just an occupant of an office. Um, and that, so that's a kind of personality called personality, charismatic authority basis of legitimacy. But then there is associated economic nationalism, right. maybe um, uh, um, uh, kind of a, a focus on immigration, uh, cutting even legal immigration. Um, and um, we're the kinds of things that um, I mean, I guess this goes also to good government, um, whether issues having to do with um, kleptocracy and um, the kinds of good governance measures whereby people don't inter don't dovetail their personal and their political um, interests together. That seems to be less of a concern um, than I would have thought. Yeah. So, so I, I just want to take a quick a quick pause. I I, I, wa- I watched you on other podcasts, and I of course I follow you on Twitter, and I think you have a great sense of humor. And today we don't have the opportunity to really display that because we're talking about something really serious and we're both really tired. And I want to be honest with people watching. Um, so we're, so I'm just, we're going to keep serious. And I, if people were expecting something else, I apologize. Um, so Trumpism. So, 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 so Trumpism. You know, I live in Atlanta, um, which, which, which last night one of the TV stations referred to as the state of Atlanta, which I wish it was, as opposed to being in the state of Georgia. Um, but but Scott, the reality, and you, and of course, your career is devoted to talking about law and, and and the nature of law. So where I live in 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 town, Atlanta, if you go twenty miles away, it is a completely different society with completely different values, much more Trumpism type values than I have, um, and I think that's probably we created in many American cities. You go 20 miles, 30 miles outside of Phoenix or New York or Detroit or wherever. Um, <clears throat> and Trump, I think, has made those divisions much, much worse. Can we come back from this? I mean, I, I, mean, they're, they're, I, mean, I, I don't – I had friends who supported both Bushes. I worked for the first Bush, for goodness sake. Um, it used to be we could have beers – or I don't drink beer, but pina coladas and go out and debate politics mm-hmm. – and go home and be friends. And that seems to have been lost. Can, can, can we recover? Well, well, so I don't know. I, I would say the following thing. So, you know, let's talk about us and the people we know. I think um, that the, and this is what makes things so complicated, I think, is the fact that we, we associate with and talk with and are friends with in various kinds of ways with colleagues who are conservative, who are members of Federalist Society, who, um, would, you know, voted for uh, W and wanted Romney to win. I mean, so like people who are on the opposite side. But I feel like in many ways, you know, our common 
commitment to good governance and the rule of law has, in fact, um, uh, outweighed partisan divide um, in general. Um, and I feel like there's a way in which the people that we kibitz with and debate uh, on social media and in our work um, are people of, I think, goodwill um, and people who are who are intellectually honest to the extent to which partisans are intellectually honest, just as we have our blind spots, they have our blind spots. I actually feel like Trump has made the divide between us um, much less because it's highlighted what's common. Uh, and, um, and, they, and the part of Trumpism, which is anti-good governance, is precisely the thing that one of the things that offends people like us, but also people like us on the other side of the divide who were united with by virtue of being in the same profession. That, 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 so that that's interesting. Um, I've always taken it as a um, personal, I don't know, sign of something that I, I, I spent a lot of my time with the Federalist Society. Uh, my, 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 my school doesn't have a conservative public law professor. So I am the de facto even though I'm on ACS's board, I'm, on, I'm the de facto Federalist Society person, and I love my Federalist Society students, and I bring – I have brought numerous conservatives, Adler, Soman, you name them, down to Georgia State. Um, and I think that's all good. I agree with that. But here's the bad, and, and here's where I'm worried. Right before I came to this podcast, um, I was listening to the Supreme Court this morning, which, by the way, is a nice thing to be able to listen to the Supreme Court live. Maybe someday we can watch it. God forbid. Scott, tell me why I'm wrong about this because I I am kind of pig – I am am stubborn on one issue, and and the issue is being debated today in the Supreme Court, which is the city of Philadelphia uh, wants kids to be placed with foster homes, and they have all kinds of procedures for doing that. And Catholic Social Services wants to be involved, but they don't think legally married gay couples are legally married. So they will not, they will not use their influence to help gay couples um, uh, get foster kids, which means the city of Philadelphia said, well, you're not following our rules, so you can't participate in this program. You get $26 million for other things, but for this program, no. And my point about this is that shouldn't be a case to me. Like that, the fact that that's in the Supreme Court, both courts ruled, ruled for Philadelphia below. And all Philadelphia is, I get this is connected to Trump. All Philadelphia is saying is if you want our money, you can't discriminate against gay couples. That's all. And they're going to lose. Philly is going to lose this case. We have a Supreme Court that I think is closer to Trump than it is to Biden by a lot. And that is very disconcerting to me. Um, am I wrong? Yeah, it's, no, you're absolutely right. And I think it's a, a colleague of mine who's I, I won't mention who it is. I, I mean, not that he would mind, but I didn't get his permission. But because uh, it was private um, correspondence. But he said, how come so few law professors are willing to call out the Supreme Court for its partisan um, nature? And um of course you do. <laughs> I mean, that, that that's obvious. Um, I, I have, um, but very few of us do. Um, and it's a curious thing. It's a curious it thing um, um, about, and the thing is, it's not like I'm a legal realist in the sense that like, I believe it's all 
you know, window dressing and all that stuff. Actually, a lot of my work is is trying to show that the legal realism, kinds of legal realism are too easy and lack evidence and there are alternative explanations for behavior. That having been said, um, it's really hard to see these FedSoc culture warriors on the court and seeing their behavior and think that this is a that this is anything but as I call it, the Supreme Court of the Republican Party, rather than of the United States. Um, and it's un- and I was hoping that Democrats would take the Senate would pa- would expand the court to nullify the stacking that has occurred in order to undo the bad damage. But um, that looks like it may not happen. Um, uh, but you know, I-, I I just don't know how long. Um, we can continue the charade of pretending that is anything but what it is. So uh, you, um, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said, and I'm really interested in a lot of what you just mm-hmm. said. Um, as you know, I, I'm a, when it comes to the Supreme Court and appellate judging in the open spaces, I'm a legal realist all the way down. I don't, I'm not a legal realist about everything. I, I, federal district court judges almost never, you know, th- yeah, what they have correct. to do is, is, is not really touched by legal realism all that much. But when we're talking about appellate judges in the open spaces, um, so Ginsburg and Sotomayor vote liberal progressive, voted and vote liberal progressive every time. Thomas and Alito vote conservative almost, whether it's 96 percent, 92 or 99, it doesn't matter. And Souter, White, Stevens, Blackman, Kennedy, they all floated because they were left of center, right of center politicians. I guess I'm a little, why isn't the legal realist critique of the Supreme Court, just the Supreme Court, dead on? That law does not matter to them. They will vote their priors. And if they don't vote their priors, like maybe Justice Roberts did in 2012, or maybe like he did in the abortion case this term, it's because of other political considerations or institutional considerations, not legal considerations. Why am I wrong to be a total legal realist about the Supreme Court? Okay, yeah. So, so let me just let's say. In, 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 so, it. De- so H. L. A. Hart in Chapter Six of the Concept of Law made the argument, um, which, sorry, Chapter Seven. Sorry, Chapter Seven. <laughs> I won't hold he, you to he, it. He, okay, okay. He made the point. Um, that, like, in the appellate and Supreme Court levels, there's rarely law to apply, or at least the issue will be a legally unregulated case. And so, therefore, you're not a legal realist if you think judges are looking beyond the law because there's no law to apply. So legal realism... I mean, there, I guess you could think of like there's, uh, of course, there are many brands of legal realism, but one of them is you can think when judges say that they're following the law, they're not always doing that. Um, uh, and I think that's that's like, duh, like, how could you disagree with that? I mean, if you I mean, only somebody who never met a lawyer Um, has never read a Supreme Court case, um, would think that when judges say they're just calling balls and strikes, that they're just calling balls and strikes. This is like 
this is like a ridiculous myth that that we've created. It's such a, as Hart called it, a childish myth um, about about um, the way in which adjudication works and the way in which law works. But if we think about legal realism as somebody who thinks that in the main judges don't follow the law, they just simply decide based on their policy preference. Well, I'm not that way just because, as you just mentioned, you know, so many district court cases are, I mean, in a district court case, there'll be, you know, thousands of little tiny things that should get resolved. Right. And so, like, a legal realist would say, oh, what's really happening is, you know, like their judge is always trying to find the angle where they can push it to the result that they want. So I, 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 I don't I don't. So in a way, if you say I'm a legal realist about the Supreme Court, if you think that legal realism means that judges um, don't follow the law, even though when they when they have the opportunity and pretend otherwise, well, I'd say in these cases that you're concerned about, there really isn't law to apply. And the 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 um, the trick that the originalists and the textualists did was making us making people believe that it was much easier a to find the law and b for there to be law when in fact there isn't. That, that's um, that's fascinating to me. So I, to be honest, I haven't thought about it that way. I, re- I read Hart twenty years ago, um, and, and, and you know Dworkin and their debates um, a long time ago. I guess I want to say that maybe, because because this is something I talk about publicly all the time, often to audiences that are hostile, um, maybe you're underestimating how many law professors out there are formalists, are people who think, well, the Supreme Court gets a case, and there are building blocks before that. They take those building blocks seriously, and where those building blocks lead, they will in good faith, try to go, whereas I don't believe in those building blocks at all at the Supreme Court, at the appellate level, the Supreme Court level. I'm with Posner on this um, in his book, How Judges Think. And even for district court judges, when there is a legal issue that's unclear, judges have an intuition how they want to come out. They then see if it's blocked by a higher court or by, you know, uh, if you're on the Court of Appeals or a different panel. And if it's not blocked, then you use your clerks and your lawyering skills to justify the intuition you had that you, when you first took over the case. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, so I just think there's a middle position which says that um, appellate judges do use the building blocks of previous cases, just those building blocks are insufficient to determine what the answer in a particular case is. That is open. Um, that you know there are many different ways of going, even given even if you take precedent seriously. So um, I and that's what I I think. Um, and what I think happens is is that you know these they're they're lawyers, and so they are trying to figure out how to. I mean, they're playing they're playing a, they're not playing checkers; they're playing chess, and so. What they'd rather do is they'd rather add a building block and, and so that they can build a conception of the law, which they think in future cases will, if people are following those building blocks, will constrain their choices. Um, so I, I think I think there's it, it's not like as crude as I think the Posner thing. I think they're they're playing a 
a structural game, trying to get things in a certain certain um, stack the stack the law right. in a certain way to make it harder going forward. So uh, we'll get back to the election in one minute, but. So this is a question I, I like to ask people because I, I, I even though I have, I have a total biased predisposition to the answer, but I'll try to admit. But so if you had life tenure and were on an institution that had virtually unreviewable power, not unreviewable, but virtually unreviewable power, and you had four like-minded people who agreed with you out of nine. So you have five out of nine. Justice Brennan used to say it takes five votes. You have five out of nine. And you felt strongly about something. Is there any scenario where you would let pre-existing theoretical commitments get in the way of what you think is best for America? I mean, I just, whether it's affirmative action, guns, campaign finance, all the issues that are on the front page of the New York Times. If you feel strongly about that issue and you have life tenure and you can't be reversed and you can get away with it, which is a constraint. I've always said the Supreme Court can only do what it can get away with. But wouldn't... I mean, wouldn't you do what's best? I mean, I would do what's best. I mean, I'm a human being. Uh, oh, I, I, I'm a philosopher, so I, I don't do what's best. I do what my commitment, my theoretical commitments tell me. That's what. That's why philosophers should not be kings or judges. <laughs> um, but, but uh, no, I think it is a very. Uh, I mean, this is. Um, you know, there was that famous book called Super Forecasters. I think. Yeah. Super predict. Super yeah. forecasters about. Like, why are certain people extremely good at predicting? Uh, uh, we're generally terrible at predicting the future, but certain people are much better than it than others. And one of the features of people who are poor predictors are people who are have a theoretical framework that they constantly are making reference to, as opposed to kind of opening up their head to various kinds of alternative positions and being much more flexible and less theoretical. Um, uh, I mean. Like my business is a business of like, you know, uh, maybe I'm dreaming. Maybe I don't know anything. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna go with it. Um, whereas I think you know, more pragmatic, practical people tend to do that. I don't blame. I don't blame people for being originalists or textualists. I don't. Um, I. What I find incredibly offensive about the current occupants of the Supreme Court, offensive such that, um, I mean, it's something that I find it's hard to be funny about, um, but the way in which the perversion of voting rights, yeah. of which you have written yeah. extremely um, a strong um, and I think extremely persuasive um, uh, 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 blog posts um, um, uh, and writing about, um, you know, how you can um, be a judge, uh, a federal judge in the United States of America and treat voting rights so um, uh, um, with such little respect that I think that the, you know, the Kool-Aid that these people were um, brought up on um, that, you know, that everything is stacked against conservatives and, um, you know, uh, that really the, the, it's a republic, not a democracy. And we have to protect the gun rights and we have to protect 
the First Amendment, um, uh, even when it acts, uh, even when it's leads to really quite ridiculous results. Um, like they're they're just um, they're politically um, um, they're political operatives. Yes. I think. Yes. Um, yes. And I and I and I hate and I hate and I hate to say that, but I think it's true, and I think. It's silly to pretend otherwise. So, so here's something that's interesting. So here, here's something about our chief justice that I, I've written about a lot, but until you just said what you said, I, I never really emotionally felt like I'm feeling it right now. What's very famous about Chief Justice Roberts is that in 1981, 1981 or 82, excuse me, he wrote a scathing memo about the Voting Rights Act. And what just hit me about that was in 1982, we were only 15 years removed from literacy tests and voter repression and, 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 and only 18 years removed from the hotel, 1964, 74. Yeah, 18, I'm bad at math. Uh, 18 years removed from a hotel two blocks from my law school going to the Supreme Court and saying, we don't want blacks as customers and we have a right not to. So it's one thing in 2000. Uh, 14 or 13 when Shelby County came out to say what he said. That's offensive and horrible. But in 1981, he was completely insensitive to the history of racial discrimination and voting. And that makes me so mad I want to punch the screen. Not you, but I mean, 1982, he, 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 we weren't removed from it yet. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah well, I, I guess I think that like, you know, millions of people died in wars I don't know, did millions of people? No. Hundreds, how many people, how many Americans have died in wars? Let's just say. If you count the civil war, it's millions. Yeah, okay. Um, Let's say um, um, many brave Americans died to protect our way of life, where our way of life, I think the most cherished aspect of our way of life is the ability of people to choose their own leaders at regular intervals. Yeah. And, um, that, um, that the, the decisions that they, that, that these people have made, um, uh, I mean, and take uh, Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, you take her, you take her. I don't want anything to do with her. (laughs) I mean, what's she doing standing on a balcony? Um, with the president of the United States in a campaign ad, um, either so there are two possibilities. Either she's like real, like not like doesn't understand the appearance of impropriety, which I doubt. I just think it's somebody who is she's a soldier. She's in it, um, and why would you care about? being called out as the thing that you've been your whole whole life i mean that i don't know her i've never met her see oh i mean if the shoe were on the other foot you could not drag me out as uh, having had my commission signed to go to another super spreader event yeah uh, and stand with this horrible cretin on um, an, uh, on a balcony. I mean, who do, who does that? I think it shows unbelievably poor judgment. Well, Scott, while uh-huh. we're talking about her, and I don't want to get you in trouble. I don't mind getting myself in trouble. Um, I I going back to Bill Maher. Sorry, 
But um, he said on Friday night, and I agree with this 100%. So I'm going to try to say this carefully. It appears that she belongs to a group that is a subset of another group of, of religious folk. And her group apparently does not deny, and I might be wrong about this, doing things like talking in tongues um, consistently. Um, and her group is, in fact, if she – and she's never denied belonging to it uh, – extreme, extremely religious, way outside the standard deviation of American society. Why isn't that an – why can't that be an issue? You, uh, you know, the first hearing, I think Feinstein made some mistakes and, and uh, Jeff Stone and I wrote about it in the New York Times. And, uh, and the rhetoric was misplaced. I don't deny that. But on the substance – I don't want extremists on the Supreme Court on any side. Like I want, I don't want extremists. I don't, I don't want extreme progressives necessarily. I, I don't want extremely religious people who live their lives in a way that is way outside the standard deviation of most American people. Am I crazy? Well, would you? I mean, so I mean, I just think that any time we're talking about somebody's religious faith and background, I think it's much um, more helpful to see if we can translate that into pure um, uh, kind of moral criticism or policy criticism. Fair enough. So, fair enough. You know, so, so can we, what are her views about the relationship between church and state? I mean, I think that's the the question rather rather than what she herself does. I mean, I, I was a religious person for a bunch of years of, when I was younger. You know, I mean, I, I was able to distinguish between what I, I my personal faith and politics, um, and also um, it's I'm not sure it's. Um, it's uh, going to help persuade people um, uh, about the the kind of ultimate point of asking these sorts of questions of right. her. Um, um, the problem was what was so frustrating was the fact that she didn't answer anything. Right. So, like, it, it kind of, uh, I, I, you know. But, but Scott, why can't? But, but uh, okay, this is my this is my last serious thing, and then I'm going to ask you about Twitter, and which we'll get later. Okay. Um, but, but, but this question, which is going to be in the form of a two minute statement, then a question. So, Justice Kennedy in 19 before before he was nominated to the Supreme Court, gave a speech to the Supreme Court of Canada where he strongly endorsed the right to privacy and strongly uh, kind of foreshadowed his um, views that he eventually came to, to embrace. Um, uh, Justice Kavanaugh is a Republican operative and has been his whole life, and I have no doubt he will continue to operate as a Republican operative for the rest of his career, unless he changes, which is possible, but highly unlikely. Um, and I... I, I I could go – Justice Roberts hated voting rights and then he struck down the Voting Rights Act before he became a justice. Who these people were – even Justice Blackman, who people would say did a total shit. No, he didn't. If you look at Justice Blackman's past, it was not like Justice Berger's past, for example. It was less political, less partisan, all that. Justice Powell was a, 
a, a, a well-heeled, well-mannered Virginia businessman who voted for the Chamber of Commerce every time, but was kind of a decent fellow for his time. And that's who he was. And then he said he regretted his vote in Bowers, and that was nice that he said he regretted it, all that stuff. Judge Barrett has done nothing in her entire life other than forecast who she is. Her Second Amendment dissent was abhorrent in the Cantor case. Um, her positions on Obamacare have been abhorrent from the beginning. Um, it's not, so when I, and so when I mentioned the religious part, I, all, all I'm saying is if we're allowed to forecast that Kavanaugh is going to vote Republican, if we're allowed to forecast that Ginsburg is going to vote feminist, which she did, if we're allowed to forecast that Souter is going to be intellectually in the middle, maybe leaning left, very studious in his work, why is it unfair to forecast that she is going to be a Supreme Court justice in the mold that she has been in her entire life, which is a religious yes. zealot? Yeah, so, because it, so I think you're allowed to forecast it for all in using all the materials that were used in the other cases. So I think you can say, obviously, she's going to um, uh, give the free exercise clause a very strong reading or may break down barriers on the establishment clause or, you know, yeah. you could do, you could say all these things, you know, she's going to. She's going to overturn Roe versus Wade. Why? Well, you know, like look at her writing. Right. Um, all those things can be said without talking about her, like her, her the church she goes to is, is my only point. Yeah. I'm not 100 percent sure. I, I think that's true. That's true from for the it, it's true to a point. It, here's the last. If she were a Scientologist, I think that would be fair to talk about. And I'm not sure this you know, is different. I'm just not sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's the thing. I mean, so that's an interesting question. First of all, there are two levels here. One is the is it a good idea from a liberal point of view, like where liberalism is really about trying to stay away from sort of those yes. sorts of questions. Yes. So one is, is this a good is it a liberal? And the other question is, is it politically a good point of view? And I think it's a bad point of view. I mean, I think Feinstein kind of put her foot in her mouth and it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't at all helpful yeah. to say what she said. It wasn't penetrating. It didn't reach anybody. Um, it was dumb. Um, and I think, you know, so then the Scientology thing, you could start saying, well, you know, Scientology, you're allowed to talk about Scientology um, as being bad, like politically, that's like, <laughs> that's what you're allowed to do. Um, and also, you know, I'm not an expert in Scientology, but you know, it, um, you know, I mean, I think that there, I think we, we evaluate people. I mean, the thing about religions are they're not just a set of, set of beliefs, but they're also ways of life and their traditions and their communities. And I think being a, a devout Christian um, puts you in a kind of culture tradition that's very hard to kind of make up and say this person's a crackpot because they're doing these things because the, the religion's been around for you know a couple thousand okay. years and yeah yeah so there's a, there's a lot I want to say about that but it'll only get me in trouble yeah. so so I won't say <laughs> <laughs> I, I get in trouble I, enough I don't want to get in more trouble I do I, I did I forgot to circle back to one point before we get to Twitter and then we'll call this. Um, 
I, I, I have many times asked people like you, um, when I say people like you, I mean people I respect who have been serving the law for a long time. Um, why is it fair for liberals to call Trump names or conservatives to call Obama names or for me to call out the governor of my state or to call out mayors, to call out um, senators? We, we'd say things about McConnell that are just, you know, but it's not fair to say that about Justice Thomas or any other Supreme Court judge. Why are they immune? So I, I, I once did a panel, Scott, on what do we do when the Supreme Court makes um, – obviously demonstrably false statements. And this panel, believe it or not, had Mark Tushnet on it, among other people. And everybody in this room of 80 people wouldn't even concede the point that the court makes demonstrably false statements. I had about 20 that I listed. And they always found lawyerly ways of saying, well, it wasn't persuasive, but it wasn't demonstrably false. I'm like, no, it was false. It was false. Um, what about – what is it in our culture that doesn't – I get in trouble all the time for telling people who Justice Thomas really is. Why is that? Yeah, um, uh, that's – it's a great question. Um, I th- I, 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 I've thought about it a lot because, I mean, as somebody who has been coming out and saying very mean things about the – um, Supreme Court, I think about it like, is this okay? Is this not okay? Yeah. Um, and I, um, I, so the, the thing about judges, they're supposed to be the least dangerous branch. They don't have an army at their disposal. So they are vulnerable and that their only power rests with their legitimacy, their perceived public legitimacy. And if we attack it, we're attacking the one thing that the that a court system and a system of justice depends on. And so, like, be careful what you wish for. We don't want to call judges into disrepute because it will um, come back. We need trust in public institutions, especially if you're on the liberal side who you know, if you're in the good governance camp, um, you really don't want to undercut this. Um, I just think that, um, and, and so also like judges, they have tenure, they have lifetime tenure, but they can't really defend themselves in the same way. Like I can call, I can say, oh, the Supreme Court of the Republican Party, blah, blah, blah. But like Justice Thomas can say the Yale Law School of living constitutionalism and make up shit as whatever you want. I mean, he can't do that. Well, like, why, so why not? Of- Scalia did it. Scalia did it his whole life. Scalia came to my law school, uh, my city, excuse me, and, and made all kinds of scurrilous allegations about living constitutionalists at elite law schools. He made all kinds of scurrilous allegations about it. Well, so there's one thing about making arguments against your opponents. That's fine. But I'm just saying, like, you can't say that on Twitter or social media, that like that kind of fair enough, that kind of whipping up the crowd and trying to, you know, uh, humiliate um, uh, like uh, various kinds of justices. Um, There's a there's a like a limit to their ability to fight back. And again, I'm not this is not. A way of saying, therefore, we shouldn't attack them because they can't protect themselves. Just say is they're in a different situation, yeah. and we have to be careful about it. I just think I don't want people to have the other impression 
that is that this is normal. It isn't normal. It's completely abnormal. And I think that um, our job as law professors who have, in some sense, a public responsibility to, in some sense, speak the truth as they see it, because we have the privilege of having life tenure as well. Right. Um, that, 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 that gives us a reason to be clear about it, even if it affects our influence in okay. the profession. Fair enough. Which it does. F- fair enough. I, I, I don't know. I think Scalia made a career of defending his views himself. The Constitution is dead, dead, dead. Um, and uh, I think other justices could do that if they wanted to, but that, let's just leave it there. All right. So, so you are one of America's leading philosophers. Um, your writings on Hort, on Hart, and Dworkin, among other things, are, uh, you know, um, incredibly influential in your world. Um, I, I wish we had time to talk about your books, but yet you have forty thousand Twitter followers. Have one of the most interesting tongues if that's a way to put it at on on twitter um you're you're kind of an enigma because you can run in you you can run in both circles you can debate the most sophisticated philosophers in the world and you can be incredibly successful on twitter how how do you think you manage that yeah i don't know um i i mean like you know so brian Leiter used to um used to used to um uh, say to me all the time, you know, why don't you guest blog on my blog? And I, and I'm like, I'm too private. I could never do that. <laughs> and so I never, I, I, I never did it. And, um, and, uh, and, um, it just so happens that, um, I'm like, I'm real. I would be really bad at writing blog posts. I mean, that's like, that's not, that's not my, that's not my style. Um, but somehow I can like, uh, like, certain things just occur to me and I'll just post it. So I, th- this is like, the, I was never sure what I was supposed to do on Twitter when I first joined it. And I, the kind of the, the thing that clicked for me was I was once walking home in my apartment and I saw a bird flew right by me and right into a, uh, a, a glass window and like, <laughs> you know, um, and it was like brutal. And I remember thinking, Oh man, I feel sorry for that bird. Um, and then I said, and then I, the next thing I thought is like, sometimes I feel like that bird. Um, and <laughs> Me too, Scott, so all I, the time. <laughs> yeah. So I just, t- I, I was like, oh, that's funny. I just tweeted it. And then I just, and then I move on and, um, just things that, um, fun. so the thing is what people, what people don't kind of realize, I, I actually just tweet the things that I think are funny. <laughs> like that, that, like they're funny to me. Right. Um, they're just things that seems ridiculous to me. And I tweet it. It just so happens that um, some other people find it interesting. So, well, I, I no, not, interesting not some, or mildly amusing. Not some other people, but 40,000 yeah. other people at <laughs> least. Um, I, I don't know. I think um, I remember Dworkin came to my law school to give a talk. And I, that's how old I am. Um, and, uh, and and it was it was a long time ago. And I don't know the man. I didn't know the man at all. But we did have a twenty minute conversation um, about things. And um, and and Posner, who I'm very close with, has talked about Dworkin with me. Um, 
I feel like if you were in a room with the 10 most influential philosophers in the country right now who are alive, um, you would have the best sense of humor by far <laughs> of any of them, um, of the ones that I've met. I, I, I'm, I'm, try, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to see if I can see the bar all the way down. There. <laughs> no, um, no, no bar. but I'm going to make a serious point, though. Um, I asked Rorkin a couple questions that I think – one of which was, don't you think the history of the Supreme Court – up to that point in time, which was 1993, I think, um, shows that the court is not a liberal progressive institution and never will be, that we had eight, ten years of that, and that's it, and Hercules is going to be conservative for the rest of time and, and, and so on. And it went like this. Like I couldn't – there, there was no engagement of that. And I have had that experience, not on that question, with other eminent philosophers alive today who people would know. I got the sense if I talked to you – you might disagree with me or agree – but we would have a conversation where we meet. Um, I think that's your skill. I think you – this is, my, this is my, my, my meta theory about you having met you for one hour and never in person, um, which is to be able to – see things at the level you see them in your academic writings and beyond the ground is a great skill. I don't think Dworkin was on the ground, um, is a great skill. And I respect you a lot for that. And um, oh, I wanted to tell you that in person. You, oh, thank you. That's really nice. I would just say about Dworkin. So, you know, Dworkin was a tax attorney. I know. You know this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for two, for two years as, as Sullivan and Cromwell. Um, and also, you know, he did write these incredibly um, well-written and penetrating pieces in the New York Review of Books, not exactly a uh, populist uh, yeah. publication. But he did do a really good job in taking the theoretical stuff and applying it to, you know, he wrote about Bakke, he wrote about Roe, he wrote yeah. about... Uh, you know, he wrote about uh, those things. So that was that was um, really good. Um, and he himself was he was very witty in person. But, you know, the thing is, philosophical writing and jurisprudential writing in particular is not particularly funny. Yeah. Um, and, and my writing in jurisprudence is not particularly funny, not intentionally. Um, but um, the the what is really it was really bizarre and interesting is that I would not have thought that the kind of jackass stuff that I do on Twitter would mix with that other kind of philosophical persona. That's a kind of unusual thing That's for me. Like I, like I, I would just, I would have thought that um, like, like, like people would write me off like if I did that stuff, I don't care. I still think it was funny, and so and I had ten, <laughs> I had ten years. So, um, or that like it, it would just um, uh, so yeah. I, I I just think it wouldn't work, but for some bizarre reason, it worked, and I think it's probably the 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 moment in time and the particular. Um, uh, like confusion, we all feel. I mean, let's put it this way: there's like a post irony. Do you, you know this phrase, post irony? Yep. 
Yeah. So I just feel like it's like I feel like a lot of my my feed is like like you're not sure whether I'm joking or not. Right. And so being a philosopher and also being a Yale professor kind of makes you think that maybe he's being serious <laughs> and yet he says really dumb things. So you're never quite sure. Is he serious? Is he made a mistake? And that that's really fun. Yeah. That I enjoy. Yeah. No, that I, kind of mi- mixing things. I, I think I tell my students to say exactly what they mean in as few words as possible. Um, yeah. And, and, and if they can, not always possible, whether you're answering a question from a judge, a partner, a client, or a teacher, if you can, have a answer with a beginning, a middle, and an end. So if you say exactly what you mean in as few words as possible with a beginning, middle, and an end, you're on your way to being a good lawyer or good anything. Your tweets do that. They say exactly oh. what you mean in as few words as possible with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that's really oh, hard yeah. and you're great at it. And that's... Oh. Well, that's awfully, that's really kind of you. I would just say, so I'm writing a book right now. I'm, I'm almost finished on, on internet hacking. Um, and I try to use my Twitter voice. It's actually an interesting huh. exercise. Like I think to myself when I write a sentence, what I tweet that. And it, 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 it kind of helps like cut down the sentence put your words exactly where you want to punch them. I actually think it's a really good, at least for me, and I couldn't agree with you more, fewest words as possible, beginning, middle, and end, hopefully the punchline at the very end of the sentence, make sure to take out all the words you don't need, get there as quickly as possible. And then I think it's a really good idea for one's academic writing. Yeah, we, 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 we agree on that. Um, Scott, thank you so much for doing this today. It's not a day I wouldn't have picked this day to have you on, but it just worked out that way. Um, but I and, and by the way, I'm sorry I wasn't funny yeah. in any way. It's just that uh, one of the things about being funny is also, you know, funny um, is like knowing like when like the wor- when the world is not funny yes. and yes. Like, you know, like, I don't feel I don't feel jokey today. I feel exhausted. I feel battered. I feel ever so slightly relieved. But we're in for a rough. Yeah, I think while and I think exhausted and battered is how most of America feels, no matter which side you're on. And um, to end this on maybe a more optimistic note, I hope we can um, leave that world of exhausted and battered all the time and enter into a world of less exhaustion and less being battered. And if Biden wins, maybe that'll happen, I hope. A little bit, just this this much would help. Um, yeah, you know, I, I mean, really anything helps after the last four years, which has just been um, – just uh it's been a nightmare yep it really has been a nightmare and it's not over though um the unthinkable seems like it won't happen i agree scott thank you so much try to get some rest and i really appreciate (laughs) this uh this will be out for friday or something but um i can't thank you enough for doing it thank you Oh, thank you. Uh, can you just uh, is uh, if you'll let me be back on the show next time where I promise I'll try to be 
<laughs> I, I want you back to talk about your books, which I got really interested in, so. but I knew I couldn't talk about today, which is a shame. Okay. Thank uh, you, Scott. I, 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 I would love that. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, take now. care. Bye. Bye.